podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, well, I've got my little intro, if that's okay for everybody. Paul has given you the thumbs up. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to Football Ruined My Life. This is Colin Schindler welcoming you back to another edition. And this one is going to be about the sense that the Premier League perhaps isn't as competitive as it might be. To, I think, nobody's great surprise, Manchester City have won the Premier League for the fifth time in six years. And pleased as I am for my children who had a difficult time at school in the 1980s and 1990s, identifying as City supporters, and of course, for my 15-year-old grandson, who has known nothing but success in his short life, I'm concerned about the implications of this domination. As, to be honest, I was in the years when Liverpool and then Manchester United exercised a similar stranglehold. I think back to the years of my youth, and I am very aware that in the 13 years between 1959, which was the last time Wolverhampton Wanderers won the first division, and 1972, when Derby County won it for the first time, no fewer than 11 clubs in those 13 years won the championship. Neither Liverpool nor Manchester United, who each won it twice in the 1960s, managed to retain it the following season. Now, compare that situation to today's. It doesn't suggest a healthier league to me, and no amount of talk about the Premier League being the greatest league in the world will convince me otherwise. On the other hand, pretty much every league in Europe is suffering in the same way. PSG in France, Bayern Munich in Germany, Celtic or Rangers, Barcelona or Real Madrid. It's the same story everywhere. And in my opinion, the curse of the game is its success and the wealth that it brings in its wake, which just consolidates the power of this handful of overmighty clubs. I'm joined today, of course, by my friends John Holmes and Paddy Barclay. And John, I'm asking you first. You'll be pleased to know that I'm not advocating a return to the £20 maximum wage, but do you share my anxiety at this trend? Yeah, before we go on, I should, of course, note that Leicester are the only side in the last seven years to have broken the monopoly of the top six clubs by winning the league and the cup. Outside that, it's been Man City, Man United, Liverpool, Tottenham, who haven't won anything but have been in the top six all that time, and Arsenal actually have won very little. And Chelsea, of course, who had a sort of domination at one point. We all remember Peter Kenyon claiming at one point in the early days of Abramovich that the league today would be hotly competed by one club. And he was widely, of course, castigated and ridiculed for that remark. I think what is there now, Man City are an outstanding side, absolutely outstanding, possibly the best side ever seen. If you accept that the game has moved on, which I think we have to, this is possibly one of the greatest sides ever seen. Their demolition of Real Madrid in the Champions League semi-final was extreme and probably one of the great displays any of us have ever seen, apart from you, Colin, who didn't watch it. Yeah, correct. Nevertheless, in De Bruyne, in Haaland, they have two extremely talented players beyond the reach of any other club. And the fact that players like Mares and Foden were substitutes and come on who would get into, I would suggest, any other side in Europe is extraordinary. I think the strength of the league we grew up with was you always felt you had a chance, even if you finished 15th the year before, or even if you were coming up from 
the second division, as it was called then, as Notting Forest did, as Derby County did, and Leeds did. They made runs at the top of the league. Whereas these days, you and cannot Ipswich expect... Then. And Ipswich, yes. Quite yeah, you cannot expect clubs coming up to have any sort of run. That, to me, is what's been lost. The dominance of these top six clubs rather than the dominance of one club, which will move on. Paddy, you'll feel it. You know, my London club is Fulham. In the season that ended a few weeks ago, Fulham finished 10th. And that was a remarkable, exceptional performance by a promoted club. And Marco Silva was rightly praised for it, as indeed were the signings that were made at the beginning of this, this season. John mentioned Leicester. For me, um, Wigan Athletic winning the FA Cup as a neutral, they mean a lot more to me, that one Wigan victory. All of that, you know, took me back, Colin, to the era that you hanker for. And to me, as a neutral, that's worth more than a, a quadruple by Man City. And if I could just carry on, make one more point about it. I really do find it distasteful thing about the modern game, this monopoly talk. You know, everybody, can Man City, as soon as they win one bloody trophy, can they win all four? Who gives a shit? Not me. I don't like it in rugby. England win one game. Are they going to win the Grand Slam? For goodness sake, be a bit more respectful. So I don't like all this monopoly talk, but I have to admit, you couldn't talk about the greatest teams ever in England. And my personal favourite was the Spurs double side. But you can never, never now talk of the greatest teams ever to play in England without talking about the Manchester City side of Pep Guardiola. Yes, I know. Well, then you you understand why it's so distressing for me to yes, be unable to enjoy it. I do it. feel it. I feel bereaved because this is technically my team doing these wonderful things. Mm. And I can't enjoy it. I just don't enjoy it. And I think, going back to John's point about Leicester, I think the fact that everybody loved that victory, didn't have to support Leicester City to be thrilled that they won the league in 2016 or that they won the cup a couple of years ago. The enjoyment factor for everybody was enormous, apart from the the teams that they were beating, because it's so rare. And I think that is a, a fundamental problem within the game today, that the teams that dominate, dominate, as you say, whether they win the league or whether they finish fourth is neither here nor there, that the same clubs dominate year after year. Now, you could argue that in 1960, it didn't happen that way. Burnley won it, for heaven's sake, in 1960. Now, Ipswich won it. I mean, yeah, they didn't survive. They didn't go on to dominate. But it was a pleasure to start a season not knowing who was going to win. And we'll start the season and the radio programmes will be about who's going to win this year. And can anybody see beyond Manchester City? Probably not. Yeah, we've gone, in a sense, from the high street with its variety of shops and constant diversity of interest to the huge supermarkets on the outskirts of town, basically. Isn't this a result of the Americanisation, Paddy? Mm. NBC did this recent deal with the Premier League. Well, it's not so recent now. It's been there for a period of time. But Leicester winning the league was a story that really took off in America. They loved it. The small guy beating the big guy and all that sort of thing. That was what taken off. But the Americanization of it and the American owners are terrified. Relegation for them. They don't want it. They want the league to be sealed. And the attempt at the Super League recently, which was driven 
basically by the Americans. I mean, that's true, John, but the process predates that. It predates the Premier League by quite a long way. It began really with Liverpool, you know, the Shankly, and then it was exacerbated in the Paisley period. In the Liverpool, I can remember writing, must be in the 1970s or something, 80s, the most consistently successful institution in the history of the English game, Liverpool were. And then Manchester United under Ferguson became the same. So there had never been consistently successful clubs before then. It just didn't happen. You maybe got, you know, a team retaining it, like I think Portsmouth Wolves after the Second World War. And before that, of course, Huddersfield and Arsenal. But really, it was unusual for the title not to change hands. But it's not just us. You look at Paris, you look at Bayern, and of course, for the last hundred years, you look at Rangers and Celtic, you know. At least that's a duopoly. It's interesting that John brings up the Americanization and the fear of relegation because one of the good things about baseball is that it does not happen in baseball. Even the New York Yankees, you know, don't dominate in the way that Manchester City have dominated English football. And I think one of the reasons is they have this draft system where the good young players are deliberately given to the weaker sides the, the previous year. People don't tend to go, you know, to the richer clubs just for the money because most clubs can afford to pay decent wages. And it's odd that the American owners' influence in the English Premier League doesn't stretch to finding some device to make it more no. competitive because no. they don't want it to be competitive. They've, they've come here. They increasingly invest in this country rather than their own because of our mugs laws. I mean, in America, you have pure communism in the organization of sport. It's one of the great ironies. But these arch capitalists who run it are increasingly realizing that European law is such a mugs game. They would rather invest more and more and more of their money in the English game than their own. It's the contrast, isn't it? They know over there that actually competition and sharing the prices around is good for business and for the business all over the country. Yes. Whereas we, we have allowed certain clubs to become utterly dominant. And that is, as Paddy says, it's against their principles. They actually would like a more competitive league, if you like, the prizes to be shared out, providing they were only shared out between a certain number. They would share them between a greater number. I think yes. the difference is between us and Europe, certain clubs have absolutely dominated. It's to do a bit in Italy with certain cities being bigger and Turin, Milan, they've traditionally dominated yeah. the enormous explosion of joy about Napoli winning this year. That was a, you know, a rare event. Spain, of course, is more extreme. You know, there was a time a few years ago when the side from Galicia Someone will remind me of the name. Deportiva La Coruña got very near to the title. Valencia at one point had a little run, but by and large, it's been consistently. Bilbao had one Under Clemente, they won two or three titles. But by and large, you're quite right. And in Spain, it's worse than ever. I mean, a very poor Barcelona team has won, by Barcelona standards, has has won La Liga and won it quite comfortably. 
but it's a sort of a bit of an irony in view of what you said about Italy, that Italy is now probably one of the most diverse elites. The two Milan clubs, both in the Champions League semi-finals, you have Napoli winning it. You have the rare sight of Juventus, who a couple of years ago you thought were going to be as perennial champions as Paris Saint-Germain or Bayern, struggling. And so Italian football is in a state of, I don't think Italian football is ever in a state of health, but it's, it's, envi- it's certainly in an enviable position. Well, the police have played a part, have they not? <laughs> or the authorities, Juventus have sort of been fined money and points and all yes, sorts of things there. Right. The interesting one is Germany, where they have this system where, in the main, I know there are a couple of exceptions, the clubs are 51% owned by the fans and so on. That actually, the prizes have not been shared out. Bayern have no. just completely dominated. That was not always the case, of course, in the early days of the Bundesliga. And let's not forget, the Bundesliga is a relatively young league, only formed in the, I think, early 1960s or mid-1960s. Cologne were the early dominants in that. Cologne or Kern, as they're known over there, have been in the doldrums for, for a year or two now. But Bayern have been utterly dominant in that league, despite the fact that they don't have the same rules for ownership that we have. How do we square the fact that the league has become uncompetitive at the same time that attendances have soared? The game is, in crowd terms at least, as healthy as it has ever been, ever. I mean, most of people go to watch their team knowing in their heart of hearts that they'll never win anything, Mm. which seems to me to be an odd contrast. The answer is television. In the 1950s, Football was frightened of television, completely Mm. terrified by television. They didn't want it anywhere near them. They thought people would stop going. All manner of things would crash down on them were they to allow television cameras in. But in fact, what of course has happened is that television has increased the appetite of people to go to games. I have always argued that actually you put something on television and publicise, what happens is more people want to go, not fewer. Sports that have got television right in the last few years, i.e. got plenty of exposure, have done better. They've grown, their audiences have grown and everything else. And people go, they want to be part of the experience. And people have come from all over to watch the Premier League because they see it on television all around the world. The English game has been marketed both here and abroad brilliantly, you could say. And that is what has uh, led to this uh, situation. But more and more money has piled in. You could argue the league has now been won by Abu Dhabi. Saudi Arabia have come third. Qatar are trying to buy fourth. And my poor old Thailand are at the bottom at the moment. So, uh, money from outside has come in dramatically. Yeah. What is interesting is there have been very few British institutions prepared to invest in clubs and actually recognise the success mm. of it. You ought to say this is brilliant marketing. This is exports. You know, fantastic. Except that the people it's brought in have not always been the people we want to bring into the country. Well, I don't know if I'd agree with that in the sense that I'm trying to think of foreign owners who are less popular than, let's say, England's own Mike Ashley. Obviously, the Glazers are even less popular than Ashley was. 
and at my own London club, Fulham, Mohammed Al Fayed, who admittedly was a British citizen, not a British citizen, but he was a. He was an aspirant. We used to have a wonderful chant Al Fayed, oh, Al Fayed, oh, he wants to be a Brit and QPR. Well, you you can imagine what the rest is. (laughs) Oh, the poetry of the whole thing. But the, the thing is that among the most popular owners now are the media's villains at Newcastle. But I wouldn't go around slagging them off in in the pubs of Newcastle's central yeah, station. Yeah, but, it's, it's, but if, Paddy, it's about success. I mean, you know, yeah. if, if the uh, Saudi Arabians bring success to Newcastle, they're the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. So, same with Abu Dhabi and same it will be with the Qataris. And yeah. if they don't, and the Glazers were unpopular because United struggled like crazy and yeah. they were doing daft things. And you yeah. know, Ferguson, I thought, was kind of cowardly. He shied away from confronting that. I thought less of him for it. I did too. So if the owners are successful, they will be lionised. If the owners are unsuccessful, they will be traduced. Yes. And I don't think it goes much further than last Saturday's result or the current league table. Yes, that's fair enough. Would it be helpful if financial fair play got real teeth? Yes. Which it doesn't. I mean, this was Wenger's constant complaint. Mm-hmm. Was that City were taking advantage and they weren't being treated properly, etc., etc. Financial fair play was brought in to level things up, and it hasn't done it. Why, why is that? One is the way it's been brought in because it makes it easier for the bigger clubs; they can spend more money. One of the reasons, of course, for Manchester United's preeminence was the fact that they were the first to establish the brand all over the world, and yes. uh, certainly into the Far East. Manchester City have struggled behind them. But the big clubs are now brands. They sell in foreign parts. The overseas media rights are as big as or bigger than the UK rights. Mm. Other clubs have struggled to make an impact in mm. those terms. So the financial fair play rights would only really work, and they haven't been applied. At the end of the day, you get lawyers. There's so much money involved now. There is Guardiola saying he wants a swift resolution to these 115 (laughs) charges. Well, there is more possibility of uh, Accrington Stanley winning the Premier League than Mm. that happening, to be absolutely honest. We still have in this country, there are often occasions on the last... uh, Sunday of the season, as it's become. The only interesting bit Mm. is who goes down. There was a time in the 1990s when there was a game played between, I don't know, the third from bottom Mm. of the first division or the Premier League, whatever it was at the time. Middlesbrough. And and the the top of the, you know, the third place team in 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 what was the the second division. I mean, that actually had a really good feel. I don't know why that didn't survive. I thought that was actually quite... It's rather strange, actually, when you watch the championship playoff final. I thought that when that started, that the pressure of it would ruin the spectacle and in particular ruin the sportsmanship, that you'd get fights and you'd get injuries and so on. The games have have usually been played in a magnificent spirit. Uh, and, And some of the championship playoff finals have been some of the best matches. Oh, there's one between Sunderland and... and, uh, Charlton, was it? Yes, it was. It was 4-3 or something. Yeah, magnificent piece of sport. And and not unusual. Uh, The premise that we began with, Colin, if you don't mind, I'd like to turn it back to that. Because you were talking of an era where the leadership of the league healthily, we thought, changed hands quite often. Now... We probably feel it would be very difficult to 
turn the tanker around. But one way of doing it would be, and John just talked about making financial fair play mean something. And the way to do that would be a spending cap, a spending cap that was properly patrolled. What I couldn't understand when the Premier League announced its sanctions against Manchester City was that it was 115 breaches. Well, the books are supposed to be authorised annually. I mean, did the guy sort of say, well, we've found a possible breach, but let's forget about it until they all mount up to 115 and then we'll have a right good go. I mean, it looks like very, very poor administration indeed to suddenly say, yeah, we've just realised these were offences. But to have a proper spending cap, as you have now in Formula One, it's designed in Formula One to create a situation in which the teams don't just aspire to break even and win the championship, but to make vast amounts of money, which can then be used to subsidise the actual cars that you and I and Joe Soap drive. Football could, with a spending cap that actually worked, could actually make fantastic amounts of money for the owners of, let's say, Manchester United, Liverpool and so on who could then use part of that to develop their grounds so that they are super luxurious. You know, and emphasise even further, that's the problem. You've all got that. No, no, I know no it, it wouldn't, John, because you, if there was a proper spending cap, it wouldn't matter whether you had 200,000 at every home game. The money would have to be distributed in capital projects or indeed profit. And there's nothing wrong with profit. For example, if your pension fund and mine invested in Manchester United and Manchester United made fortunes every year, our pensions would go up. So it would be, in a way, redistributed to the public. Or am I being naive? There's a bit of naivety there. (laughs) Of course, what you're assuming is that even if this side were absolute rubbish Mm. and bottom of the league, they would actually fill the grounds. And having spent all this money on on your... DFS sofas all over the ground. Yes. If no one was there, it wouldn't work if they were bottom of the league. What we haven't yet quite come to terms with was how do we expand the top six and what happens if the top six contracts, as Colin is suggesting, as has happened in Germany and Spain, to just a top two. Mm. Tottenham still refer to themselves as a top six club. At Leicester, we used to laugh about that, you know, who who finished third (laughs) in a two-horse race and all the rest. And, you know, you have to have very old people, older than us almost, to remember when Tottenham last won anything. Mm -hmm. And Arsenal's trophy cabinet is pretty bare for the last few years. And Chelsea, despite spending whatever they spent this year, finished in the bottom half of the table. There have been some extraordinary things that happened, but nobody seriously thinks that Chelsea will go down next year. Mm. The problem is that we've got a situation where it's dominant. But if you said, OK, we will seal the league with 22 clubs or whatever it is, or 18 clubs, or maybe we'll seal the top two leagues, which might be more interesting if you sealed the top two leagues and said, right, you're all playing with equal money. There, that would stop the Lutons and the Sheffield Wednesdays who've fallen away coming back up. But it would deprive, if it was imposed at the moment, it would deprive many 
counties of England and Wales yes. of top-level football forever. Correct. And, and indeed, you know, part of that is the romance of starting, you know, at the very bottom and the possibility of rising to the top. The possibility is the fundamental nature of the dream that we all have. Yeah. And football supporters seem to me... They are romantics at heart. Well, I am, and I dare say we all are. We're romantics about the game. And we're romantics about our team. And what's happened in football is it's been crushed. The romance has got no room to breathe because of what's been happening in these other areas of financial unfair play, if you like. Colin, does it matter if 98% of seats at, I don't know, John will know the exact, may know the exact figure, but pretty well every seat at every Premier League match is occupied, even on a Tuesday night when it's cold. In those circumstances, do any of our little romantic criteria matter? Well, it's a fair question, Paddy. I'm just, you know, it's a significant reason for my disillusion with the game is the lack of romance that's now in it and the predictability of the whole thing. It's just contrary to a competitive league that stimulates rather than consolidates, which is what's been going on. I would probably say that the balance we have in this country is better than anywhere else in the world at the moment. And that is evidenced by the foreign rights to television, ours dwarf most of the others. People are more familiar with more English league clubs than is evident. If you started talking about Spanish clubs, I had to really struggle in I to remember Deportiva, La Coruña. Yeah. If you ask people uh, in the streets of Singapore, they could name a few uh, English clubs. And you do see the shirts, if you go abroad, of quite a few clubs. Spain, I think if you go abroad, yes, you will see a lot of Barca shirts and you'll see a lot of Madrid shirts, but not beyond that. I think we've got it better than other nations have. I think at the moment we have an extraordinary situation where we have this money that is being pumped in from Abu Dhabi and they've got the best coach in the world. The brilliance of Guardiola cannot be underemphasized. And the fact that he has bought these players and their buying power has been terrific and they've got players who've improved. Nathan Ake has improved measurably. Mm. John Stones has improved measurably. Yeah. De Bruyne, how De Bruyne has not won Football of the Year oh, for the last five years, I've no don't, idea. Don't, don't get me started. With all due respect to Erling Haaland, how can you vote for him ahead of De Bruyne? I, it just is mad. Well, that's football writers for you, Paddy. Isn't it? Yeah, I'm um, so. Since I retired, John, I couldn't agree with you more. Yes, it's gone to the dogs. <laughs> the game's yes. gone. <laughs> so your strengths are always your weaknesses. I think we've got it better. Colin, I respect your romanticism. The fact that you still worship Bell and Lee and Summerby and so on. I'm the idiot who's got a picture of David Gibson on the wall of my office and a shirt from 1963. But actually, the football now is better. Some of the play, even on, you know, average games, is way, way above the levels of skill that these players demonstrate and fitness and so on. It's fantastic. And we watched a World Cup in which a lot of nations showed enormous skill. So the game... Unlike a lot of other games, and I know Paddy quite likes rugby, I find rugby immensely boring now. 
on the whole, it's fat boys hitting fat boys. And, um, <laughs> At enormous they're speed. <laughs> they're damaging their brains. And when you see them retire, rugby is sitting on a powder keg in terms of the claims that are going to be there for brain damage in all sorts and the Steve Thompson case and so on. Other sports have gone way, way backwards. Horse racing used to be a very prominent. Watch the films of the 1950s. The Derby was a big event. The Derby's not an event that even touches people now. Golf is undergoing a big punch-up at the moment, and actually many fewer players are playing it in this country because it takes a long time and so on. Cricket has reinvented itself, it's true. That has come from the subcontinent, not from here. What's happened and why is it that we have attracted owners from abroad, yet not good owners from this country? And I think that's something to do with the class system. When I was involved at Leicester and we were in an administration, I was seeking desperately to get Mr Big coming from this country. But we never got anybody. They didn't come in. You know why? Because they thought it was corrupt and they thought it lost money. Very few people in this country have ever seen the potential of football, whereas the foreigners actually did. Yeah, that's why I'd like to see a cost cap. But I know it's a big gamble, John, because it would be messing with something that isn't wholly broken. In fact, as you pointed out, you could argue as a success story. Manchester United have had no real realistic possibility of winning the Premier League in the 22-23 season. They've got what they thought that was the summit of their ambitions. They finished in the top four. I remember the 1971-72 season where Manchester City were six points ahead at Easter. They'd just signed Rodney Marsh and then proceeded to throw it away. They actually finished one point behind Derby County, who won the league while sitting in a hotel in in Mallorca at the time. And I remember the feeling of utter devastation, of finishing fourth was like being relegated. It was so disappointing and so upsetting. We've now got to a situation where if you can't win the league, i.e. you're not Manchester City, but you finish second, third or fourth, it's a huge achievement. And fourth has become the prized ambition for so many teams that cannot realistically expect to win the title. And I think that's bad. There used to be competitions called the Fairs Cup, didn't there? And no one knew who the hell got into that. Into City's Fairs Cup. Yeah, we've spread it out a bit. The demand for European competition has got greater. And we're going to talk about that, about Europe and the influence in another programme. But I think it's hard to knock what's happened in our game at the moment that much because I do think we've got it better than they have in a lot of other countries. And that was why when the inspiration came for this Super League, the ones that were most keen were actually the ones from Italy and Spain. (laughs) The big losers out of that, of course, would have been the Dutch who'd have had no contenders in that. I had lunch with Roy Hodgson the other day and he was actually agreeing with me that Manchester City were the best side he'd ever seen in his life. And the only side he put up as a comparison were actually the Ajax side that contained Cruyff and Neskins and Rijkaard. The Dutch at that point and the Ajax model was brilliant. They haven't been able to get anywhere near that now, have they, the Dutch, sadly, because their players get stolen mm. at a much earlier age by the big clubs mm-hmm. all around Europe. Yes. 
I think Guardiola, who is not an Englishman, of course, and his side are not really very English, are they? You know, one or two of these sides, they have only a few English players now, or even British players now. But they have become preeminent. And I think Guardiola is a big factor in that, just as Ferguson was a big factor in Manchester United's preeminence. Actually, the exception to this, of course, were Liverpool, who went through two or three managers, but managed to create a preeminence. And Peter Robinson was there. John Smith was chairman. They had, to me, had a model set up at this point, whereas the other clubs, I don't think, have had that backing. You know, one senses the way Manchester United, in form terms, fell apart once uh, Ferguson left and before once Busby left. And Wolves, when um, Stan Cullis left, if we go back earlier, it's uh, the influence of the manager, the coach, I don't know, seems to me to be greater now than ever it was before. There was a continuity about Liverpool in the 70s that meant that they could move seamlessly from Shankly to Paisley mm-hmm. to Fagin to Dalgleish because yeah. they had been all been at the club for a long time. They knew each other. The methods didn't change. Nowadays, of course, managers come trailing 15 assistants. So if you clear one bloke out, the manager goes, 15 people go and 15 new people come in, and it is a huge change. And I think one of Liverpool's strongest elements in that success was the continuity. That yeah. seems to me to be gone. United tried it, ironically, of course. When Busby went, he, he gave it to Wilf McGuinness, who'd been steeped in United all his life, and it didn't work. So it's not just a question of having somebody hanging around the ground for 20 years before they take over. It is getting the right person. You mentioned the entourages and the, the number of staff that you have. I was just smiling because, having just watched Manchester City's title celebrations after the win against Chelsea, and... <laughs> Rather nicely, rather becomingly, I thought, before the players came out onto the pitch, they sent out all the staff. So, of course, all these fat geezers in in rather (laughs) tight Manchester City strips, whose job it was to carry the baskets and you don't do massages or something, all came out. Of, Of course, not all of them fitted that description at all, but it took about 20 minutes. I swear everybody who works for the club, was given a, a standing ovation. And and, and, and some of them I, were on the verge, I swear, of pointing at their names on the back of their shirts. <laughs> it actually was rather good because it told you a little bit about the atmosphere in the club and perhaps that an awful lot of good things have been done at Manchester City in the uh, Abu Dhabi era in terms of uh, community work and in terms of internal relations among the staff you don't get many people leaving do you i think there's also this question you've made the point about the staff moving on and the, this bit now that a manager moves on and takes with him two coaches and everybody else yeah this was originally the reason was it not that directors of football came in yeah and it might be a topic <laughs> of conversation for us as to how many different definitions are there of what a director of football actually does answer, within a club. Answer, count up the number of directors of football in Britain and that is the number of different kinds of functions of director of football. They were supposed to be, there was some sort of bizarre notion of a foreign model for this, rather like stadium sharing, where you have one man who stays at the club 
and managers come and go. Coaches, head coaches come and go. But this guy sets the identity of the club and it lasts through the decades. Well, it's never happened. I don't know a single club. I think Manchester City have tried it when they, they got the guys from Barcelona. What were they? Cheeky Bergeristan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To come. And also the off the field, the chief executive as well. To come with Guardiola and establish that. It, 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 it's fair to say that Manchester City have. But an awful lot of clubs, John, I totally agree with you, have tried it and it just doesn't work because the director of football changes. When new owners come in, they come in with new ideas and out goes the continuity principle. The fans, if the form is bad, they only ever blame the manager stroke coach. Yes. A lot of them don't even know the name of the director of football, no. so they can't shout, get out. There has been this sort of thing that the board takes some blame, mostly on account of no money. It's rare that the manager is popular and the board are unpopular. Well, it's gla- the Glazers and Ferguson manage that very well. Correct. Ferguson, really popular. Glazers, very unpopular. Newcastle, everybody hated everybody up there. Yes. At Leicester, everybody loved everybody at that point. It was a real sort of loving. Now we're not doing so well. First of all, it's Brendan Rodgers, and then it doesn't improve that much. So there must be something else. I've always argued, you know, that these things are collective failures when you go down. It is not just the man. Of course there are. Bits and you look at and the you know people appoint a new coach and suddenly the form improves and say well that was a problem, you know Stephen Gerrard at Aston Villa was replaced by Emery and suddenly their season shot forward. Mm. The number of managers coaches that changed in the last season was extraordinary, mm. but of course by and large the only one I can absolutely say that really the form changed was at Villa, wasn't it? Yeah. Actually, no, Palace. But it could be argued that Roy came in at a good time because they had easier fixtures. So, but there's no doubt that uh, Roy Hudson coming back did up things. But they sacked him a couple of seasons or let him go yeah. a couple of seasons ago. Yeah. So there you are. Can anybody, see, can either of you, rather than anybody, can either of you see an end in sight to the Manchester City dominance of the, of the Premier League? No. Yeah, the end of Guardiola. That's the only thing I can think of. If Guardiola decides he's had enough, I guarantee you the follow-up act will be a lot, lot more difficult. Yes. And the only thing I think that I can see dragging him away at the moment, and I think in a way the Premier League charges have created a stockade around Manchester over which Guardiola would not dream of clambering, even if there were a more attractive prospect somewhere else, which there obviously isn't. So I agree with you. Only Pep Guardiola deciding that he wants to become principal conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic, for example. (laughs) I can't think of anything other than him fancying either a new challenge or another sabbatical in Manhattan. Well, it does does mean that Simon Rattle will become manager of Manchester City, which I think will be a marvellous idea. You know, I've heard of dafter ideas, haven't you? (laughs) Well, the music on the couch would improve, no question. (laughs) But, but it's a serious question. I mean, whether you think that this domination by one club all over Europe or two clubs has got an end in sight. I mean, yeah, OK, I take your point about Guardiola at City, but, you know, Celtic, Real Madrid or Barcelona, PSG. 
I, I suppose if PSG, if, if the Qataris take their money out, maybe that will all collapse in a heap. I don't know. There's no sense that PSG will ever win the European Cup, as they used to call it, mm. because however much money they spend, they seem to be unable to complete a team that is yes. actually focused in the way that Guardiola absolutely has got City focused. Yes. I think that if the Qataris were to take over Manchester United and run it like they've run Paris Saint-Germain, oh, nice, the rest of the nice. league would be delighted. <laughs> we'd be thrilled, absolutely thrilled. Oh, Todd Bealey is the man, isn't he? He's my favourite man. Yeah. He's <laughs> sacked you know, Tuchel for not being part of the WhatsApp group. Yeah. What a great decision that was. Absolutely unbelievable. And bringing in Frank. Now, I don't blame Frank at all for this. He was a, as much a spectator as anybody in the stands, Frank, wasn't he? And as Gary Neville said in the commentary on the City game, there was a camera dwelt on Frank looking out on the pitch and he said, he doesn't like those players, does he? <laughs> well, Paddy and John, thank you again for another stimulating discussion. I hear what you say and I accept a lot of what you say, but I still cannot help feeling that the romanticism, which is at the root of my belief that what the game should be about, is the core of what the game should be about for everybody. Other people can retain it because they self-evidently it's obvious with the full grounds that they do retain it. I've retreated and I no longer regard myself as a current supporter of Manchester City because I don't like what it's become not in terms of its football on the field, but what it stands for off the field. And it's affected me, and it's blown out the romantic belief that my team, that I identify with my team. We've got the best team ever in my lifetime, and I cannot identify with it. And I could identify with rubbish teams in the 1980s because they were still my team. This is the problem that I have not solved. Everybody, 99% of City supporters, have no problem with it at all. But that's my problem. It's not my team out there. It's somebody else playing in blue shirts. Very good as they may be. I can only admire them, but I don't love them. And you have to love them. Paddy, thank you for everything you've said today. John, thank you for everything you've said today. We'll see you all next time on Football Room My Life. But you can let us know what you think about what you feel about your team. Has the romance died over the course of your lifetime? Or is the romance as strong indeed? You know, escalating even as you get older. We'd like to know, and you can tell us by writing to footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. So it's goodbye till next time from John, and goodbye from Paddy, goodbye from me, Colin Schindler. See you next time on Football Ruin My Life. Podcast Network.